Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. I am pleased to welcome to BCD's People Are Culture podcast, Dawit Gaber-Michael Habti, the author of the memoir, Gratitude and Low Voices. His book recounts being raised in a tiny village just south of Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, and his flight to Kenya as a teenager in the midst of the ongoing Eritrean-Ethiopian War. Dawit shares his journey to asylum in the United States, encompassing both the abuse and neglect known by so many refugees around the world, as well as his successful acclimation to a new country and return to Eritrea to help his ancestral land emerge from 30 years of debilitating war. Dawit, thank you so much for participating in a People Our Culture podcast, and uh, I'm delighted to have you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. You are most welcome. And I'd like to begin with a question I ask of each of my guests, which is, what is culture? How do you define culture? Even though culture, in a general terms, is defined as a way of life of a group of people and the way they interact with each other, the way they do things, I think we lose the deeper understanding of culture if we leave it, leave it there just as a general term. In a deeper sense, I believe culture is both the tangible and non-tangible uh, arts, knowledge, secrets that a society uses to, trans- to pass from one generation to another and culture is also the mode of communication, the means that's used to communicate those tangible and non-tangible uh, entities. For example, we define arts, music, cultural institutions, social institutions as part of a culture. But at the same time, those institutions those artifacts are also used to communicate or to pass the secrets, the knowledge, the how-to of a society from one generation to another. In other words, culture is used as uh, a way of to communicate, to interact, to uh, connect many, many, many generations and those entities, those tangible and non-tangible items are also, I believe, part and parcel of culture. I agree. And my second question, you may have already answered, but it's an opportunity for you to expand a little bit on your thinking. And that is, why does culture matter? In simple terms, it matters to provide con- uh, continuity. It matters to share deeply and uh, deeply held, held knowledge and secret 
from a generation to generation. In other words, uh, culture is, it matters because it is used as a means of survival, as a means of com continuity, as a means of connection uh, that we cannot otherwise uh, accomplish without using the social construction that we call culture. Yes, well said. I completely agree with that. Now, to begin talking about your story, which is very powerful, as a teenager, you fled your homeland of Eritrea to escape the war. And I have to confess, until learning of your book, I was completely unfamiliar with Eritrea and its history. Can you share for listeners a little bit about the country? Absolutely. Eritrea is geographically located in the Horn of Africa by the Red Sea. It is bordered by Ethiopia from the south, Sudan from the west, the Red Sea, and of course, Yemen and Saudi across the Red Sea from the east, Djibouti again from the south, and it's basically uh, located right in the heart of uh, the Red Sea. Historically, and the historical uh, notion of Eritrea is defined as actually by its location. As uh, they say in the real estate market, there are three factors that define the value of a real estate. It's location, location, and location. And by its virtual location being in the Red Sea, once the Suez Canal opened in 1869, Eritrea became just the, uh, the pawn in the what we call the global geopolitical chess game. It became a war zone starting from way back in at the uh, at the end of 1800. Uh, once the opening of Suez Canal invited uh, the Italians to come uh, to Eritrea, and uh, the Eritre uh, Italians colonized Eritrea uh, basically until uh, the end of uh, World War II, and uh, in fact. The term Eritrea was given by the Italians during the scramble for Africa in 1890 in Berlin. The Italians are the ones who coined the, the, that part of the world who labeled it Eritrea. And, and what does that mean to the Italians? Once, uh, uh, Red Sea, actually. It does came that... from, because the Red Sea used to ah. be called, uh, the Red Sea okay. used to be called, yeah, the Eritrea. Yeah, the, it's, uh, yeah, and biblically it's used to be the Eritrean Sea. So that's where they got the name from. Okay. And mm -hmm. uh, at the end of uh, World War II, as we know, the Italians lost to the Allied forces and Eritrea became a trustee of the United Nations under the British administration. And the British stayed until end of, uh, 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 until the end of the 30s, which is until 1941. And then, naturally, because of its location, Eritrea was one of the many, many African nations uh, that should have gotten its independence uh, 
just like Libya, just like Somalia, that were former colonies of Italy, they got their independence. But Eritrea, due to its location, it was chosen by the United States to be part and part parcel or part of Ethiopia because Ethiopia was a strong ally of the United States. And the U.S. needed control of the Red Sea in order to monitor the Russians, their communications from through the Red Sea. And Eritrea was basically selected uh, to be uh, uh, handed over to Ethiopia. So there was a federation that lasted for 10 years until uh, between 1952 and 1962. And in 1962, actually a year before the end of the federation, Ethiopia annexed Eritrea without uh, giving the people of Eritrea to actually uh, decide uh, their uh, destination in terms, through referendum. A referendum was supposed to be held in 1962. Unfortunately, due to the strong alliance between Ethiopia and Eritrea, Eritrea was annexed with Ethiopia. And of course, naturally, that triggered a 30 years of war, 30 years of armed struggle for Eritrea's independence. In 1991, Eritrea obtained its de facto independence. Eritrea was liberated. And then two years later, in 1993, a formal referendum was held. As expected, Eritreans fought for more than 40 years for their independence. And in 1993, 99.8% of the population voted for independence. So that allowed Eritrea to be formally uh, an independent nation in 1993. Well, it's amazing just how much you can learn through talking to people about their own stories, because your story for me has opened up a whole window of, as you say, um, geopolitical events um, that uh, I knew nothing about. And um, this is quite an education for me. And, um, you know, it's a great encapsulation of a very long and complicated history that you've just described. Um, I'd like to now um, begin talking about your own personal story and your memoir, which is entitled Gratitude and Low Voices. Can you share the story behind the name and the role of gratitude in your life? One, uh, since we are also talking about culture, one of the end results of many, many years of uh, conflicts and suffering that you see in the people of Eritrea across the board is they are extremely grateful to anything that they consider to be positive, regardless whether small or uh, large. And I grew up in a society, in a community, in a family where education especially is extremely, extremely appreciated. And in one, at the beginning of the book, uh, I think uh, there is a section where I came home uh, from school with a, uh, with a certificate and uh, an award. And when my 
mother saw the achievement achievement of her son. Uh, she just basically started giving great, uh, being grateful, giving gratitude to the disciples uh, uh, of Jesus, to God, to Saint Mary, and the way I uh, I described it in the book is that so my mom was so overwhelmed that she start she continued her gratitude in voices in low voices so that uh, i could not even hear and to me this low voice this express the, the low voice that i could not hear and the smile that i see in my, my in my mother was one of the most powerful expressions of love and compassion no amount of words could express. So, yeah, to me, and I think uh, that was ingrained in my mind for many, many years. And uh, uh, to be frankly, I only have uh, so many things to be grateful, considering uh, where I, in life I, start, I started uh, and uh, how far I was able to travel. And uh, most of it... Uh, uh, without, uh, I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity and for the, uh, exposure that I was able to get in life. Yes. Well, I, I have to say that I myself, um, have learned to cultivate a practice of gratitude. Um, I, I believe it, um, you know, can make difficult times actually easier by really paying attention to and honoring uh, the good. And that was actually the reason why I was drawn to your book initially, um, because the, the title really appealed to me. And particularly juxtaposo, juxtaposo, juxtapositioned against what I, what I realized about your story. Um, so, um, you know, it's a it's a tremendous lesson uh, for people to just understand that it is a way of life that can be cultivated. Um, now, next, I want to ask you, there is a passage in the book um, that refers to you um, having a, a one of your first jobs when you were young, when you were a child. Um, as a letter writer for your family and community elders and how that job as a youngster instilled in you, um, and these are your words, an unshakable self-identity. Can you describe how that experience uh, made such a deep impression on you and contrast it with the experience of, of being a refugee and um, how that experience affects self-identity? Yes, I actually was extremely fortunate uh, to be able to get that opportunity to write let letters to elders, uh, some writing to their children, some to their great-grandchildren. Uh, and this gave me an opportunity to learn uh, the Eritrean culture, which as we described earlier, a culture is a means of communicating secrets of a society, hidden knowledge. 
So inadvertently, I was actually learning the expressions, the idioms of the elders that they were using the, to relay their messages to their uh, family members. At the same time, I was also learning the challenges my society was undergoing. At an early age, I had to make sense of why members who love each other, members of a single family who love each other so much and who seek and strive for each other's presence, yet they cannot be part, they cannot be together. I could see by the letters that I was writing how much the father, the mother, the grandparents, they want to be close next to their children, to their family members, but they cannot do it physically. And this, this experience that I was learning from the elders, from others, became golden in my journey uh, in exile because I could easily make sense of, the, of some of the challenges that I was, I was going through because I have heard it to some extent as a child, if that makes sense to you. Mm. Yes. Actually, that really enhances my understanding of what I read in the book because I, I better appreciate that not only did you have the benefit of a profound experience in its own right, but as you made your journey and you were separated um, from people that you loved, you know, you had that basis of understanding, which I, I'm now in the moment appreciating more than, you know, I, I fully understood when I was, when I was reading. Um, so that's, that's very powerful. And can you talk a little bit about the experience of, you know, how being a refugee, how your sense of self-identity was affected? Of course. One of the biggest challenges of a refugee or the life of a refugee is we are, we are fairly, or a refugee is fairly certain where they started from. Refugees know exactly where they started from, but they have no idea where their destinations might be. I left home uh, back in September 1989. To me, home was Asmara, Eritrea. I went to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, which I have no idea in terms of the culture, the social interaction, the social norms. And within three weeks, I was in a journey to Kenya, which again, I had no concept even of the language or the food or the culture, the customs of any of that society. So the, but the advantage I had was again, I kind of understood every time I faced new culture, new, new custom, I could say, I guess this is what the elders were trying to convey or to, they were trying to Basically, actually, when the people who are in exile were writing letters to their parents and when we were reading those letters, I guess these are some of the difficulties that they were trying to convey to their 
parents or to their uh, uh, grandparents, meaning when the people in exile actually write letters to their parents. So for me, it gave me hope in such, in such a way that one way or the other, some of the challenge will be of, will end. But there were times where uh, we could not differentiate uh, whether uh, how close we were to uh, death itself. Uh, we, we could not differentiate whether we were uh, 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 going to make it out alive or uh, we were going to die once we crossed the border, Kenya, uh, border, the border into uh, Kenya. Uh, and the, so the, there were uh, nights that uh, we have to walk through places that I could only imagine reading them in books because they were this uh, forest that we have to cross at night. Uh, mm. And the fear at times was more of uh, not to be eaten alive because we could not imagine what kind of animals we might encounter on the journey. So to summarize, I think it's uh, uh, it was a journey that I feel extremely, extremely grateful that I was able, I'm able to actually, uh, I am able to survive and tell about it. Of course. Well, I suppose that, you know, just from my own perspective, you know, when you refer to, you know, you knew where you came from and there was a certainty about your circumstances. And, you know, I'm sure that as you were trying to make your way to safety, um, there was a lot of uncertainty to deal with. And that that's, you know, that's frightening. No, that's the biggest challenge of Continue. a refugee in general. Yes. Uh, in the fact that uh, the only thing that they know for sure is they are starting point. They, they have no idea of the final destination. And that is the most scary part of being a refugee. Mm. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, I did just next want to touch on um, more of your journey and to frame that, you know, as of 2017, 65.6 million individuals have been forcibly displaced worldwide because of persecution, conflict, violence, or human rights violations. And your book vividly conveys the incredible challenges and complexities of your journey. Yet for many people, it is hard to imagine what it's like to be a refugee. Can you share a particular memory that allows people to walk in your shoes and fosters a greater understanding of the experience? I Let me try to read a section in the book that might elaborate uh, the challenge that we felt when we we got robbed of every everything that we had during the night around midnight once we crossed the border to Kenya and uh, we the human trafficker that was helping us took us into the graveyard, the gra graveyard. Uh, 
And we had to spend the night in the graveyard. And this description is how we we spent that night with uh, when it was pouring. The rain was pouring uh, as if uh, uh, God had decided that was the last time rain was going to fall. And uh, mm-hmm. this is how I described it in the book. Our bodies started shaking from the cold and shock. Yet we were so terrified of being caught that we had to keep our teeth clenched together to keep them from chattering. We could not allow ourselves to make any sound. Whenever we heard a sound or detected motion, we would stare in the direction, even though we could see nothing but dark. It felt that night like we faced death eye to eye. Now, I truly understood why armies did everything they could to avoid waging war during the rainy season. The only positive aspect of that night was that the moon did not come out until the early morning hours. Although we could see nothing, at least we had the security of knowing we could not be seen. We rested as best as we could, called wet and afraid. What a metaphor for so much of your journey uh, and the uncertainty. Um, And I know that we're going to um, come back to um, touching upon the the trafficker uh, that uh, you had to entrust to get you, you know, to Kenya. So we'll come back to that. And I think, you know, it's such a service for you to be willing to share your experience because for so many people, it's, it's really difficult to imagine themselves in that situation. I, I do understand, uh, why they cannot imagine it. Uh, but, and that's what makes the story the more important. Uh, at the same time, though, I think what I would really like people to consider or to have better understanding of a refugee is, as I think it's Albert Einstein who said, a bundle of belongings isn't the only thing a refugee brings to his new country. We refugees bring diverse cultures And diverse cultures mean diverse viewpoints, diverse perspectives. And I am, I have been working in the technology industry. And one thing that we seek is a diversity in viewpoint, a diversity in perspective. And that is what refugees bring to their destinations. And that is not something any society can get very easily. So people may need to reconsider the way they look at refugees instead of looking at them as if these are a group of people that are coming to take advantage of their destination. They're actually coming also 
to provide diverse perspectives, diverse viewpoints in diverse countries, uh, cultures that actually makes the new society the more stronger, much more stronger than it was before. Well said. And I, I would, you know, echo that. And I think, you know, to go back to my original observation, um, you know, being a refugee is something that could happen to any one of us at any time. And for many people, particularly in the United States, um, you know, our ancestors were refugees. I mean, you know, my family's people came um, from Ireland after, uh, you know, a famine. And um, it's well within my familial memory, um, you know, the stories that I heard and there was, um, it's not the same as your story, but um, it's certainly um, a state that any of us could find ourselves in. And, um, you know, I do agree that the more multifaceted, um, you know, a conversation is, um, the more vibrant it is. Um, and on that note, um, your book revolves around several very compelling themes that really rang true for me. And one of those, um, and this is the other thing I want to say, DeWitt, is that, you know, even though your experience um, was so dramatic, because of the way it's written, you know, I think there is much that people can identify with, whatever their circumstances might be. And, you know, one of one of the themes um, that uh, came through very loud and clear in your book that I think is just part of the, the human condition is that our, our, your realization that our challenges are always transitional and not permanent. Um, and I think that's a very important uh, conclusion. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how that belief came about for you. That belief actually came about to me uh, the minute I landed in a Kenyan prison. And uh, once we, the group of us that were traveling, we ended up in Marsabit, one of the Kenyan towns in the northern part of Kenya. Uh, the experience was painful to say the least because uh, I, I also had uh, uh, a problem on one of my legs where I was having a hard time walking. Uh, it was actually, uh, uh, I was bleeding continuously on my ankle. And for some uh, reason, actually not for some reason, obviously our initial reaction was after going through all the painful experience that we went through, we assumed we were going to get deported. We were going to get deported to Ethiopia. We only expected they would either detain us for life or we get killed. That was the only option that we saw in front of us. But miraculously, uh, someone who befriended my father 20 years prior uh, came more than 500, 600 uh, kilometers, paid our bail, 
and we were able to get released after months serving in prison. And the, to me, that became my first realization that every future problems were going to be transitional because I had already given up in life. And without anything of my doing, without any of my contribution, my problem was resolved for a better life. So that was the turning point of my outlook in life that I had to stop assuming the worst of any problems or any challenges, that the problems were going to be transitional. That is so inspiring. And, you know, in my own life and in my own way, I have found that to be true as well. But I think, you know, for so many people, they can get so stuck in a problem and they can just really not see that there there will be a solution. Um, I want to, you know, the next um, theme, uh, which is related to what you just said, um, that you know, comes through in, so strongly in your book is, you know, that we have very little control over our outcomes. And, you know, to hear your story, that, that seems um, kind of strange to say. Um, can you explain the belief and the circumstances that led you to it? Uh, well, I think... It's also, as you said, it is related to uh, my experience in prison. But also, once we arrived in Nairobi, uh, we started the uh, resettlement process through the UNHCR, through the United States Embassy, and through an, a sponsorship uh, that my brother secured us through an ambassador's church in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, one thing that people don't realize of the whole refugee resettlement process is each step takes is defines your destination. One of the 10, 20, 30 steps that refugees pass through, one step, rejection in one step, could completely change your fate. You could have been accepted through the 12, 20 steps and get rejected in 25. And that completely def uh, uh, defines your destination. So instead of getting worried in terms of what the end result is going to be of step number 10. And if I'm only in step number one, I would, I had convinced myself my best responsibility is to do whatever I can for that first step and wait for the result because the result is outside of my control. The only thing I could control is what I can provide, the input to my result. The result is not mine. In fact, jokingly, 
to my close friends, I actually tell them, uh, you know, nobody has actually has given you the guarantee that you are going to wake up tomorrow. It's not under your control. No one, you, you sleep, no one has guaranteed you you will be up the next day. If that is the case, if that is the way we live life, we might as well do what we can today and not worry about what tomorrow brings for us. Well, I think um, living on a 24-hour basis um, really makes you live that day very fully. And I think so many people, myself included, um, <laughs> regularly can look so far ahead in the future and uh, anticipate problems. And that's very counterproductive. And I, I see it in myself and uh, I try to, uh, you know, uh, redirect my thinking. Um, and I think it's a very powerful message that you have. Uh, thank you, uh, Meg. And by the way, this does not mean don't plan. I have five kids. I have uh, a wonderful wife. I have a family. I have parents. And I do plan. I just do not worry of the end result of the result of my, of my uh, feature of whatever I planned for. Uh, the result, I will accept it gratefully. And what people don't understand is the choice is yours. Either you accept it, move on, because you have no control on what the end result is going to be. So the earlier we realize that, the better off we'll be. Absolutely. it's And that's a very, very powerful lesson that your book offers to people of wildly different circumstances because it really, um, you know, it creates much less stress in your life if you're not anticipating problems. And if you just deal the cards that you're dealt. Um, and so um, it's a very powerful message. Um, now, uh, my next question relates to another powerful message, which is about um, a pivotal encounter that you had in Nairobi between um, yourself and um, a person named Tesfaye. Can you share with listeners who he is and what led up to that moment? Yes, thank you. Tesfaye is, actually was, uh, since I have no idea where he is now, he was the human trafficker that we made deal with to help us get to Kenya safely, from Ethiopia to Kenya. And he seemed to have known, uh, I think he knew a lot of, a great, he has a great deal of knowledge of the southern part of Ethiopia. He knew the roads through the bushes, the shortcuts, how we uh, could bypass the checkpoints. So he had, in he has deep knowledge of the process, of the roads, of the checkpoints, of the area. It he was well experienced. So what makes it difficult to believe uh, what happened to us was. The fact that highly experienced human trafficker 
would get us into a shop and he would get us robbed of everything that we had, every possession that we had. We got, he got us robbed. He took us to graveyard. We suffered. And uh, eventually, he led us to a Kenyan prison as well. And to make matters worse, he ended up in prison with us. For some reason, he was able to get out of prison within two days. And then he went back to Addis and threatened the family members that we left our money with. He threatened him basically to give him more money so that he can get out, who could get us out of prison. So he made sure we got into prison. He went back. He asked family members for more money to get us out of prison. And once that information came to us when we were in prison, we told the family member not to give Tasfaye a penny more than we agreed. Uh, because, as I said earlier, we had given up that we were going to be deported. So, after passing through all this, I was working in a minibus, and one day when I came from the U.S. Embassy submitting our resettlement process, I jumped into a Matatu, and as we, the people who work in Matatus, we say, Sare Moja, meaning one free. If there are two of us, Sare uh, Mili, two free. Basically, we are telling them, we work in minibuses, so we don't pay. And if you come to our minibus, we will not charge you. So there is this uh, culture, to use uh, uh, the term culture, of Matatu employees or people who work in minibuses, we don't charge each other. We know each other. So I jumped up into the minibus and I said, traditionally, Sarimoja. The driver looked back and guess what? It was Tasfaye, the same human trafficker who left us in prison and went back and asked for money. As I was honest in my book, the first thing that came to my mind was to run to his neck, choke him, and kill him. That was all that came to my mind. We looked at each other, we stared at each other, and for some odd reason, I came to the realization, this guy has just become a refugee like me. <laughs> After everything that, that everything that he did that was in his power, he still ended up becoming a refugee like me. He's not any way better off than me. So that realization allowed me to stretch my arm and say to greet and treat him like a human being. And that was the last time I saw the face of the man. That is such a powerful story that in, you know, just a moment, not even a moment, you had the grace to forgive him. Um, and, um, you know, 
can you speak about that? I mean, um, you yeah, know, forgiveness. The is... forgiveness was not for, no. The forgiveness was not for him. It was for me. I needed a peace of mind. I actually right. helped myself. Yeah, it was. I. That's why I said I am not sure what came to my mind, but that realization that he's not better off. He did not improve his life at the cost of. Uh, at my cost, at my friend's cost, at my sister's cost, that realization uh, gave me peace of mind. I had to move on, and it was it was for me, not for him. Right, right, understood. Um, and um, that is another kind of uh, letting go, you know that that you were talking about earlier in terms of outcomes. Um, that was a very powerful passage in your book. There's a, a passage about your transition to high school in Maryland after you immigrated to the U.S. And you have a couple of exchanges with fellow students that were, you know, I would say jarring but instructive experiences for you and for the, the reader. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about those experiences. A couple of incidents, as you mentioned, one of them, I was sitting in an art class and I could see a few young women, in uh, my classmates, they were laughing, they were playing, and when I looked at them, I know they were looking at me. They were at least trying to look at me, and they were. I sensed that they were talking about me or there was something that they uh, were referring about me. I decided to continue with my work and one of them got up, came to my chair and she said, Dawit, can I ask you a question? Uh, so my suspicion kind of got realized, but then I was not sure what the question she had in mind. So she said, have you seen a naked woman before? Then I realized the, what could they possibly have been talking about. So I decided to put the joke on her or on them instead of me by saying, yes, I did. I actually did a number of times because when we were jumping from one tree to the other, the leaves fall from our waist, and then we all are necked. And she could not wait to run back to her friends and tell them, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. So when they were laughing, I was laughing at them. And uh, a number of uh, my teachers, when I told them about it, uh, afterwards, they didn't appreciate uh, my response, and uh, they told me that I was making the students their uh, their shortcomings. I was making it worse. I, I was making worse their understanding of Africa. And my response was, at that time, I was more thinking of protecting myself, uh, not uh, educating people who I perceived to be. They were willing to be ignorant. Uh, otherwise, 
I it was not in my basically the choice I made was to defend myself, nothing else. And the second well, was actually before with, you uh, move on to it, I, I have to say, like I found that a very moving passage of your book, and <clears throat> I identified with it a lot. Um, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid, and you know, despite in so many respects, you know, looking like other people, um, there was an understanding that I was different, you know, based on, on different factors. And I think, you know, to, to, you know, I felt very self-conscious and I felt very vulnerable that, you know, I was an outsider and, um, and I think it's part of human nature to to be kind of defensive and to, as you say, want to turn the tables on other people. And I think it's a great credit to your teachers that they they you know pointed out to you that you know to take the high road would really be to understand that these people are truly ignorant. They just don't know any better. And um, you know to to um, really have compassion for people that um, are just ignorant. And, and I give you a lot of credit in your book that you, you have the self-awareness and you, you understood that, you know, you were a boy, you know, trying to protect your, your, um, your dignity. Um, but at the same time that you were kind of feeding into a, a misperception. And so I think that your experience is instructive for anyone that finds themselves, you know, being an outsider in some way and the need to um, teach people um, who don't know any better. Yes, I did take that lesson and I do make, uh, and well, my book is one of the ways that I try to make sure that I provide with honesty, that uh, there are lessons to be learned for both of us, for me and for the society that I live with. Right. And I, so, that's why I think your book is such a service because, you know, you are very humanly, you know, telling it like it was. And um, um, so anyhow, I, I thought that was a very, uh, you know, moving anecdote. Speaking of honesty, and the second incident was that uh, went under my skin uh, when one of my skill, schoolmates asked me who gave me the sweater that I had, uh, I had on at the time. And I, initially I was not sure how to answer the question, but since, as I mentioned earlier, at that age, my main objective was to protect myself. I told him I bought it from a shop. And he actually aggressively said, uh, no, I didn't ask you for where you got it from. I said, who gave it to you? The unfortunate part was that I did not actually buy it. Dave Ryzak, a friend of my brother, actually gave me that sweater. <laughs> so I... The first thing that came to my mind was, how did this guy know that somebody else gave me? So I assumed there was something in the sweater that indicates somebody gave it to me. So 
I decided to wake up or just walk away. Uh, I did not want to show him my face, the anger and the sweat that I had. So finally, I ran into the restroom and uh, I took off the sweater. I looked at it and there was nothing. The only thing that I realized afterwards was it was a designer sweater. So I'm sure David Rizak had a good taste. So he bought a good sweater. And the implication of my schoolmate was that I was not wealthy enough. I did not have enough money uh, to afford that type of sweater. And that unfortunately did go under my skin and it did question, uh, it did uh, force me to question myself. Uh, and, uh, and sh sharing that yeah. story, you know, is such an act of honesty and courage that, um, you know, kids can be so mean. And if they're not um, kind of guided to, to recognize that, they can grow up to be mean adults. Such a simple um, exchange between two kids and you remember it. And, and I have my own comparative situations that I remember. And, you know, the, the positive is that it was a learning tool for you and that um, it, it ultimately did not diminish your uh, belief in yourself. But it's, to me, a powerful anecdote because it's illustrative of the fact that small exchanges can have a lasting impact. Yes. Well, for the first, uh, a memoir is supposed to be uh, personal. And uh, if uh, we truly are writing a memoir, we have to point out those types of personal incidents. And this, the lesson is, uh, I also learned a lot. I learned that I had to be extremely, extremely cautious when uh, I encounter individuals either rightfully or wrongfully, that I perceive to be uh, from disadvantaged, disadvantaged part of our society. Right. I have to take extra care. And this is also a lesson to my kids. And when I say my kids, meaning the next generation, that uh, I'll give you an example. I, I made uh, almost actually all my kids read uh, the Victorian cl uh, classics, especially uh, Charles Dickens uh, books like uh, David Copperfield, Christmas Carol, and others. And one of the questions my son once asked me was, why are you making us read books about miserable lives? And my response was, because everyone that you encounter, your schoolmate, uh, the people that you, you encounter at work, they do not live in a single family house that, like you do. There are people who are passing through the life that you are reading in these books now in this day and age. You may not realize, but a lot of them are your classmates. A great deal of them are your schoolmates. So you better be careful that you treat them just like any other humans. And I, I think that, you know, is such an important lesson because we never know what somebody's circumstances are. 
And, you know, I think part of navigating around in the world requires making certain assumptions, but we never really know in that, in that spirit, um, a major theme of your book is the idea, and these are my words, that, you know, guardian angels have consistently appeared to you, um, you know, people that um, you've encountered uh, who really have made a very positive impact on your life. And I'm wondering if you can share a couple of those with us. Yes. The overall theme of that, uh, of the section or sections that have that deal with the angels without wings is that in life we all encounter walls we face we found a wall we try to push it we try to push as hard as we can and the world does not move but somehow someone comes out of nowhere they hold our hands they move us to the side and they show us the here is a door you could pass through this and we pass through that door and the worst part the worst thing that we could do is forget the person that has showed us the the door because we undermine the value of that door that door might be small it might not even have costed much to the person who showed us that wall but that the i mean the door but that door does actually make a difference in our life. I want to uh, talk about your relationship with Mike Bloomberg. And um, I'd love for you to just share a little bit of how you cross paths with him. Um, and, um, and then after that, I want to talk about your acknowledgement of him um, in your book. So can you tell us how you came to encounter Mike Bloomberg? I attended Johns Hopkins and uh, about four, five months before my graduation, uh, a couple of folks came from this company that I've never heard of called Bloomberg. They interviewed me and by 5 p.m. I received an, a letter of acceptance. And then uh, 10 days after my graduation, I graduated on May 22nd and by June 2nd, I reported to Bloomberg headquarters in New York. Uh, I think the head office at the time was on uh, 499 Park Avenue. And uh, I, as a typical junior application developer, junior programmer, I went through the three months of summer finance training uh, and uh, I joined the internal systems. Uh, working uh, regularly, and I was as part of the internal systems. I was working more on the developing tools for that manage access to Bloomberg products, how customers access to the products, and sometimes you have to come early to test those uh, functionalities because they impact the end user uh, if the testing is done during uh, the daytime. So early morning. I came to test, and uh, while my application was running, I decided to, I wanted to have some grab coffee uh, on my way to the 10th floor. This gentleman walks out of the elevator, and I look at him, and he said, good morning. And when I stared, 
he looked familiar and I knew it was Mike Bloomberg and I was wondering why he was, what he was doing at 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. in the morning. So I was not sure, not sure how to react. Do I say good morning? Do I say that? Before I think he realized uh, I, my nervousness, he said, good to see you and he walked. So I went, instead of getting coffee, tea, whatever I, wanted, I, I had come for, I decided to go back to my desk and check when to confirm that um, I was staring at the person that I was actually staring at, which was Mike Bloomberg. I checked and it was Mike Bloomberg. So from then on, I started checking what time this man arrived, the CEO who was making billions of dollars, and he consistently arrived between 6 and 7 a.m. And the lesson that I picked from that was that I had to beat him. I had to be in the office before him. I, it was, to me, it was not even optional at that time. So uh, that approach continued. I went to Eritrea in uh, uh, January, February 98. And uh, when I came back, I realized that I needed to go back and uh, do something uh, in Eritrea. I saw the hunger for education, the hunger for knowledge of the Eritrean youth that uh, was mind-boggling uh, in terms of based on a, uh, a session that I did, a, com- a presentation that I did, I realized how much there was for me to contribute. I approached Mike uh, and uh, he said, uh, I emailed him initially and he said, come at noon. I wrote a proposal. I wrote, I wrote with uh, colleagues of mine I wrote a business plan and Mike funded my uh, in my project that I worked in Eritrea for five years. Mike Bloomberg pre-ordered 10,000 copies wow. for the company. I think, uh, of course, deserving, deservingly, the last paragraph in my book reads this way. Mike Bloomberg, I am humbled and grateful to have worked for you, to have met you, and to have known you as a person. You have never failed to amaze me as a person and as a leader. Of all the people you meet daily, globally, you remembered this obscure programmer programmer, who at one point in your life crossed your path. Thank you for remembering me after many years and for being part of my life. Thank you for everything. You are my hero. Mm. That is just such an incredible story. And I appreciate you sharing it because I think that um, it's a reminder to anyone listening that their equivalent of Mike Bloomberg could be walking across their path in five minutes. And, um, you know, to have the hope that uh, we do get the help that we need. Um, That's a wonderful story. And I'm also interested in what that acknowledgement implies to me 
which is that we all have a need to be seen and heard by others. Um, you know, that it's all, uh, it's important that we honor ourselves and our stories, but um, it's, it's equally important, I think, in my mind, that there is someone to hear the story. And in your case, you know, one of those people, a pivotal person was Mike Bloomberg. But would you agree that um, it's as important to the storytelling that there be someone to hear the message? Absolutely. I think uh, in our discussion earlier, uh, one of the ways to connect with others is to stop and acknowledge the person's presence. And that's where it starts. Well said. Now, to switch gears, um, there's there's so much more of your story that I would love to talk with you about. Um, but, um, you know, my hope is that people will get the book and, you know, read more about the, the rest of your journey. Um, now, I know that um, you were back in Eritrea this summer. Can you talk about how it felt to return and how things have changed? Yes, I was back to Eritrea over the summer. And what's different this time than my prior visits is I actually took my family. So we had my grandmother, my parents, my uncles, my aunts, my my sister, her children. We had this room full of four generations. And uh, to me, seeing my kids getting blessed by their grandmother, running to each other, lining up for the blessings every morning, every night before they go, they go to bed, uh, and expressing their affection to my grandmother uh, in Tigrinya, in one of the Eritrean languages. To me, that was one of the most fulfilling moment in my life. It's, uh, it's amazing. Uh, a friend of mine is going to visit to Eritrea this Sunday. And my daughter, who is 12 years old, has written more than 35 letters, put them in envelope. And she asked me to find someone. And I dropped the letters two days ago to my friend so that he could take it back and give it to her cousins, to the friends that she acquired in Asmara. Uh, so this connection that these kids have created uh, with the friendship that they have, they have built, the very fact that it didn't take them one day to jump into uh, a tray in Eritrean tradition, especially in the Tigrinya culture, uh, everybody sits in a, uh, around a tray of food and we all eat with our hands. And, uh, and when my parents saw that, they, the kids were behaving the same way as my nieces and nephews who were born and raised in Eritrea uh, were behaving. So to me, that's more important than anything else, the human connection that 
a grandma who never saw her grandkids, they they were able to interact uh, uh, as if uh, they have been together uh, since they were born. So that was Ooh. an amazing moment for me. I bet it was. That's awesome. Well, and that's a, a segue into my last two questions. Um, Best Cultural Destinations tagline is people are culture, connecting is the destination. And you've just done this beautifully, but um, I'd love to have you describe for listeners how you uh, define connection. Well, connection is what a culture does. It connects 10, 20, 30, 40 generations. And connection allows us to have empathy for each other. Connection is what allows us to even more than empathy, to even collaborate, to live together, to work together. Uh, And at the end of the day, I think uh, if we are able to have an empathy through connection, I think we'll have a much better world. I agree. Now, can you suggest ways or approaches to foster connection? I mean, you've obviously you know, you've had this incredible journey. And I know a lot of your book is about, you know, the, the myriad people um, that have actually, you know, shown you kindness and, uh, you know, been kind of like everyday angels. Um, and you have to be doing something right to, to, foster those kind of connections and so i'm wondering if you have any suggestions for people on on how they can do that uh, it's not that difficult actually for for beginners just smile and be sincere about your, your smile smile when you encounter someone just smile and be sincere show them that it's a sincere smile when you ask someone Hi, how are they doing? Wait for the response. Listen. Uh, that's simple. And show them you care by listening. And acknowledge and be grateful for any type of kindness because there is no such thing as a small kindness. And respond with thank you. Very good advice. Oh, wait, this has been just so awesome. You know, it just really is, you have an incredible story and um, so many positive messages for people. And I'm so grateful again for you sharing this with me and with listeners. Thank you so much.